Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The jazz session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This is ECM week on the jazz session. All three interviews this week are from ECM recording artists.、Uh, that label has supported this show、uh, right since the very beginning, and there have been a lot of great ECM players、uh, on this show over the、uh, last couple of years, if you can believe it. Today's show features John Abercrombie. He was on my third show when、uh, I'd only done two. And no one had ever heard of the jazz session.、Uh, John agreed to come on, and、uh, I think that was a big boost for the show initially. And so here we are, 100 episodes later, and he's on the 103rd show, and I'm very excited about that. And I'm very grateful to John、uh, for coming back on. All this week, I am giving away copies of ECM's new compilation CD, Anniversary Waltz, which includes music from John Abercrombie, also from John Sermon, who was on an earlier program this week, and、uh, seven other. Albums that are coming out this fall from ECM, you can get your copy by sending an email to contest at thejazzsession dot com. That's contest at thejazzsession dot com, and just put ECM in the subject line. And I'm drawing one winner at random each day. Today's the last day, so if you're listening to this late at night on Friday or on Saturday, you've probably already missed it. But if you're listening to it early on Friday, you still got time to get your email in and、uh, try to win yourself a copy of Anniversary Waltz. Today's guest, as I mentioned, is John Abercrombie, and he's got a brand new record out called "Wait Till You See Her," and it opens this way with "Sad Song."
My guest is guitarist John Abercrombie. His new CD on the ECM record label is called Wait Till You See Her, and I'm so glad you came back. Thanks a lot. Yeah, me too. Nice to be here. So, um, when last we spoke, the third quartet had just come out, and mm -hmm. um, with uh, the, the change of a bass player, this is three of fourths of the same band. Can you talk about how the band has, uh, has kind of grown or changed uh, in the intervening couple of years? Well, I think it's, it, that's the big change is, is, is the inclusion of uh, or, you know, replacement of Mark Johnson with Thomas Morgan because Mark was uh, he was just unable and to, to uh, commit himself to a lot of uh, tour, any touring or recording at the present time. So I, I stumbled on Thomas. Actually, Thomas came to my house a few years ago and we, we played a little bit with a drummer who lives near me. And um, I was really impressed with him and I really liked him, but I didn't. So when the idea to get a new bassist arrived, I spoke to Joey Barron. It's always good to speak to the drummer, you know, because if the drummer likes the bass player, you know, then you know you're in good hands. And I, I trust Joey implicitly. So I, uh, I said, well, who would you like to play with? You know, who would you recommend? He said, oh, man, hands down, Thomas, you know. And so I said, OK, it's a go. And luckily, we were able to do a tour with Thomas. We couldn't. We didn't have an opportunity to play the new music on the tour because I hadn't written a lot of it. But we uh, we had about a almost oh, about a two week tour that wound up in South Korea, and Thomas was the bassist on that. So we got to play together and play some of the old material. And what Thomas, the band has changed in the Thomas is mostly because of Thomas because uh, he's just a very different player than Mark. You see, and Mark is very sparse, but Thomas is even sparser. He's uh, he's really a minimalist bass player. But when he plays something, it really seems to have a lot of meaning. And he also has a different tone than Mark's. He may be not quite as, as sustained or ringing, but, but very round and kind of there's more of an attack to it than Mark has. So that changes up the whole, the whole picture of the band. And he leaves so much space that uh, then again, it's just it's his influence, really. And now with this new CD, it's the new music, too, that, we, that I wrote. So the band is actually sounding kind of quite quite different even if, though it's the same instrumentation you know can you what does it mean to be a minimalist bass player but can i help folks understand what, yeah. what effect does that have on the on the band the bottom end well it, it's, it's he's he's minimal in that, that he doesn't play a lot of notes but what he plays is very supportive and it, it, a lot of times it comes in in his, his solo excursions i guess you would call them i mean when it's time for thomas to uh, to play a solo he leaves so much space that is he's not constantly playing notes See, there's He'll play a phrase and wait, and then you're wondering where where's the next phrase coming in. He'll put it in sometimes a very odd place, but what happens in, in, on the recording for me? Some of the the nicest moments are some of Thomas's solos because they're so unexpected. And then he'll just all of a sudden play a phrase in the upper register of the bass, and it'll be so lyrical. You'll just you'll just uh, be amazed that he played that. You know, you you wouldn't think he would. You know, just, so he's full of surprises. So I think. I think that's what's um, the band has a, more of an element of surprise and shifting gears than it did before. The last time we spoke, uh, you mentioned, and I can't remember if it was for the third quartet session or not, but you mentioned a conversation you had with Manfred Eicher from ECM, where after the second take of a tune, he said, "Well, here's one take where you played a million notes, and here's one take where you played fewer notes, and exactly. you ended up taking the fewer notes." And which I didn't ask you then, but I should ask should have asked you then, and I'll ask you now. Do you feel like you've kind of gotten to a place? technically where you're comfortable enough on the instrument that you can leave the technique behind and just focus on the music not totally i mean i think that's 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 what i'm always trying to go for and it's it's not just a matter of 
playing less notes. It's just a matter of what notes you play or what you decide to play, having more meaning and feeling very relaxed and comfortable with your, your technique so that you don't have to push it. But I'm still caught up from time to time, unfortunately, in, in that uh, quagmire that a lot of musicians find themselves in is, am I really going to play something that's really musical? I mean, can I relax and just let this flow or, or am I going to force it? For me, it's more a matter of that than just actually having the, the technique. It's whether or not I'm going to force something out. If I feel I'm not playing well, I might dip into a bag of tricks a little bit. You know, I think that's every musician has tricks they do, whether they would admit it or not. You know, and I think that that's, that's what I'm trying to get rid of. I'm trying to just make it as pure as I can, you know, and just, just play what I'm hearing and what I'm feeling and not to be worried about the technique. So I'm still, I still, it's a constant, constant battle is this, this question, you know. Is that the kind of uh, the kind of thing you're thinking about, kind of on a on a gig? Like if it, you can, you're feeling like I don't feel like this is gelling right now, and so I'm gonna oh, yeah. go in some direction. This will happen on a gig. I mean, it, you know, it happens mostly on a gig. I mean, because when I'm when I'm at home and I'm practicing, I'm not playing for anyone except myself, and I'm and I'm not usually trying to make a performance out of it. I'm sort of just trying to work on different things, or maybe just maintain a degree of uh, flow and, and technique that I'm so that I don't uh, lose it, you know. So it always happens on a gig. and it, it, Sometimes it's just because I feel there's nothing happening and I have to make it happen, which is usually not the case. It's just how I'm hearing it. Or, you know, it, it, musicians see and hear a lot more than the audience gives them credit for. I mean, we see people in the, in the audience and, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see a couple sitting together, and, you know, and you'll see the girl looking at her watch, you know, something like that, you know. So, and then whispering into her boyfriend's ear, and you know what she's saying, pretty much. He's like, oh, Ronald, why did you bring me here? I really don't, you know, this is not, you promised me a nice evening out, you know, and dinner and a show, and this is a show, you know. So you know that, because in these clubs, a lot of people, the majority of the people that come in there, I think, are people that don't really know what they're going to be encountering, you know, and then, of course, there's always the hardcore fans. So sometimes you, those kind of things will make you play a different way, you know. It, it, it sounds strange. You don't think musicians are aware of that, but I know I am. I can't speak for every everybody out there, but I'm, I get very tuned into what's kind of going on. And when you're playing live for people, of course, you want that response from people. You want a response from people. Otherwise, you could stay home. So then you feel, well, should I try to reach them or by playing something exciting now, or should I just stick to my guns and play what I just play me? And usually I just sort of play me, but and those those little tricks that I talked about earlier, sometimes usually those will come out as just part of the music, and then I then they're okay. I mean, if, if something that I do technically that's a little exciting, if it comes out in the natural flow of events, then then to me that's that's okay because that's that's musical and it was intended. But if I feel I'm doing it to quote unquote get over, then I I really get down on myself later. You know, like why did I do that? You know.
is there a flip side to seeing the crowd, which is where you see that they're excited by something going on, and so you pursue an idea that you might not have pursued yeah. otherwise? That'll happen, sure, because I think, I think people um, pick up on a lot of things. It's very interesting. Sometimes I think people pick up on things that are very spontaneous, you know, because they can tell that we're listening to one another and that we're really reacting and playing off of one another. And I think that even though the people don't know what we're doing, and they can't possibly understand some of the musical forms we're playing on or improvising on, but they pick up on the spontaneous part of it, the interaction, and, and just sound-wise. And also, they, you know, somebody said to me the other night, "Oh, it's it's obvious here. It's great to watch how you're communicating visually, like with John Sermon and and Jack, you know, and just just waiting for little cues or just being in touch with somebody on the bandstand, looking at somebody instead of just shutting them out, you know. So, um, yeah." Are you are you surprised most nights on the bandstand? Sometimes, no, I wouldn't say all the times. You know, I, I uh, but there definitely are surprise. Usually, there are surprising moments every night. You know, I can't say the whole night is a surprise, but so far, every night playing with this band, you know, with uh, Jack and Drew Gress and, and John Sermon, there have been surprises every night, even though we're playing the same tunes. And uh, what what causes that to happen? Different things. It can be that just somebody, uh, let's say, for instance, that Jack DeJohnette decides to play a different rhythm on a tune than he played the night before, and that may be because he forgot what he played the night before, and maybe he's even forgotten what tune we're playing, or he's not quite sure. So he just starts something, and all of a sudden the tune is in a different, uh, has a different feeling to it. Or it might be just that uh, we we might uh, come to the a pause in a tune, and it'll all of a sudden get very free, and and we'll develop a new little. Uh, a section that has nothing to do with the tune, and uh, so, so I think it has to do more, more with the interaction between the musician, musicians or one musician doing something that's unexpected, and then the others kind of latch on to it, you know. And and that's it. so it can it can be a group thing, or it can start with one person and then become a sort of a group uh, experience. When I was uh, when I was growing up and I'm not going to lie even now I was a big fan of of prog rock and one of the things for me that was satisfying about music like that was that it was incredibly complex and it was played exactly the same way every time right. so that you knew where all the hits and all the cool runs were going to be of course, and yeah. this sounds almost like the the inverse of that where um the song can develop in any direction and that is what where the excitement yeah, comes it, from. This, you know, we're the opposite of what you're talking about I mean where everything's performed and played the same way I mean it's just it's absolutely the opposite. I mean, you know, you do have a structure, and there's things you're following on most most tunes, but the way they develop is just, it's always different. And the other night, we played a tune of John's that I've played, I had played four times in a row, and I played it in Washington, and I played it, and the first night I played it at Berlin, I got completely lost. You know, musicians get lost occasionally, and we get, that is, there's a form to a song, and all of a sudden, somewhere you go, whoops. Where am I? I don't think I'm in the same place as the bass player and the drummer. And for sure, I wasn't. But I couldn't figure out. And that's a very interesting thing that happens. And when that happens, you, you kind of, you don't want the audience to know that you don't know where you are. So you're trying to kind of be, cover that up. But at the same time, you're listening so intensely to the other guys to see if you can figure out where they are. And so but that's, that happens. And that happens because you take a risk, you know. And when you take a risk, the risk is that you might sound bad. You might play something that's terrible, but then again, you might also the the inverse might be true. I mean, you might just play something great. It, so you have to. 
it's it's yeah, it's completely opposite than that other kind of music. <laughs> and, but I would say it's even it is even different than some kinds of jazz performance. I mean, where it sounds oh, sure. like the structure of this band and of your own band are free enough that uh, that almost anything could develop, as opposed yeah. to you know just just an improvised you know head solo head where the you know there's a bit of it that's improvised, but you know where it's going roughly. This sounds much. F- freer and open to yeah, I th- oh, collaboration. You're right. You're right. It, it is. I mean, it's, it's uh, even though we have structures, the structures are, uh, could change, or just the way we approach the tune could change. The structure may stay the same, but instead of we might play it a little faster, we might play it a little slower, we might play it in 3-4, even though it's in 4-4, four, four, or, or we might actually start to break the tempo down and play rubato. In the case of my band, sometimes we just go completely, we leave the song, you know. Or, or there'll be interludes, you know. But I've been playing like this for a long time. I mean, even years ago when I used to play with Ralph Towner and we had our little guitar duets, we would sort of almost purposely plan these interludes. Like We'd say, we'll start with a song. Okay, now when we get to the end of the song, you just keep playing, and I'm going to pick up a 12-string guitar, and then I'm going to come in and join you, and we will play this. Then we're just improvising. Then we have no structure. And he said, and then you... You can drop out and change to a, your little mandolin guitar or something. So we would kind of plan episodes, but the episodes themselves weren't planned, but the idea of them being included in the music was planned. Whether it was my band, it's just it's never planned. It just kind of happens. And with Sermon's band, it's it's a little more structured, but the same kind of thing happens. You know, that we change the feel or the. Like I say, play something in three four that's supposed that's written in four four, but all of a sudden Jack will imply a waltz, and there we are, you know. And you have to be really listening for that because you know, or or you'll miss it, you know. <laughs> so I think that's what that's what really happens in a band like this and a band like my band. There's a different kind of listening that goes on as opposed to a a more normal jazz band where where you have a structure like you say a head and somebody plays the melody or the arrangement and then there's solos on a particular structure then the next soloist and then they play the the song the theme out there's a lot more it's a different kind of listening i mean those people when they play that way they of course they're listening too but it's a different a different kind of listening because no one nothing's going to change that much it's just how good can you play on the form you know and how you know if it's if you're playing swing straight ahead jazz i mean is it swinging what does it feel like and they go for that. So that whereas this is like more abstract than that, you know. But we're still dealing a lot with form and and, and, uh, and structure. And sometimes people will come up to you and say, "Gee, I when after you played the melody to such and such a tune, you went you went completely free, right?" I said, uh, "No, we didn't. You know, I, we were still playing the song. Really? I've even had musicians, you know, say that. You know, Lee Cohn had said to somebody once, you know, he said." When he heard me playing with somebody, and he said, oh, they're playing free. And my friend said, no, not. They're playing uh, such and such a song, because he, he knew the song. It was a standard song, but, but we were, it was so abstract. He didn't, he didn't, they thought we were just playing completely free.
so somebody said to me recently that music, uh, uh, good music, requires the audience. Uh, he was referring to jazz specifically. Requires the audience to do a little bit of work, at least some of the time, not for the entire show. And it sounds mm-hmm. like the music that you're talking about, particularly when you're playing newer compositions where it's less likely the audience is going to be familiar with them, sure. that you're asking more from the audience. Is that a fair statement? Think? I think, well, I don't know if you really are asking more from them. I mean, it depends on, on the composition. I mean, you know, a, a lot of the things I play with my band, because I'm, I'm, I, like, I like melody a lot. I mean, I like very strong melodies and, and chord progressions and things that are almost singable, even though they may be a little weird, that I think if, if the audience hears something that's very tuneful, it kind of grabs them. So that gives, that's almost the same as going up on the bandstand and playing a blues or Stella by Starlight. I mean, it, it's, it's different, but it's something that they can hear. And the first time they hear it, maybe they go, wow, that's pretty or that's funky or that's whatever it is. So that gives them already something to grab hold of. And from there, they can just enjoy it. So I, I don't think, um, I guess, I don't know if they have to work as hard, but uh, I think it depends on the individual. You know, I, I think... I don't know. It's a really good question. I think the audience is, um, I think it just depends on, on, on who they are. I mean, how they would uh, perceive the music or how they would hear it. Because that's one thing I've often wondered about. What does the audience hear? There's no way I'll ever know that because I can't get into some, inside someone's head and hear what they hear when we play. And this is the question a lot of, I've talked about this with other musicians. Say, well, what is, you know, what do they hear? Do they just hear this overall sort of sound, this sonic thing or... Do some people actually hear the rhythm we're playing? Can they follow the rhythm? Because that's a big part of it. You know, if, if, you can, if you play something that's very rhythmic and that people can hear it, then they all of a sudden feel more comfortable. If you just kind of go up there and playing very abstract, then they, have, they do have to work harder, in a sense, I guess. I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting question. I, could, I think about it a lot, though. I mean, what, the actual, what actually people are hearing, you know, and I have no idea. Does the... Does answering that question, does it lead you in any particular compositional directions? I don't think so. I think I just have a natural tendency to write, for the most part, melodic, uh, singable kinds of little compositions. Not all of them. Some of them get a little abstract. But, but the majority of them are, I mean, I'm like a song, I'm a tunesmith or a songwriter. I'm not, I'm not like a, an arranger or a, a composer, like a classical composer. And you know, I'm just, I write songs and but they just don't have lyrics, you know, but they're songs with melodies and chords. And I just hear very, to me, they sound kind of simple. So, but again, I don't know what they sound like to other people. I know other musicians have commented on it, but what the average non-music person listening to my music or, or band, I mean, I don't know what they, how they, how they perceive it, but it, I don't think it influences how I write. You know, I think that's just something that's sort of like more private and you just sort of do it and, uh, and I don't even think of the, sometimes I don't even think of the musicians I'm writing for. I mean, I just write songs. And then I say, oh, this would sound really great if Mark Feldman played this, this line and I played this part, you know, and then we could have a, you know, in harmony. And then I start thinking, after the tunes are written, I start thinking about how they, how to perform them, how to play them. Because in the beginning, they're just songs. They're just these things on a page and they don't mean anything until you start playing them with people. And these. And a lot of times I rely, uh, very much rely on the, how the other musicians interpret the songs and how they're going to hear it, because they'll come up with things I could never think of, you know. So I, that's why I play, try to play with the best, you know, best people I can, you know. 
it seems like just about every review of your uh, the the quartets of recent years uses the phrase chamber jazz somewhere in mm -hmm. it. And I wonder is that a is that an accurate reflection of kind of your intentions for the band? Does it even mean anything? I, I don't know that it does. Um, I think it's I think it's kind of accurate, and I think I've even mentioned it too that, that um, you know especially when we're, we're playing sort of the, the more abstract things and we're doing some free improvisations. I've I said in print that I know I've read it that, that I enjoy this kind of free improvisation more than sort of free jazz like with the, what people think of mostly as free jazz you know with saxophones and trumpets and just a lot of like screeching and howling and you know, this 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 becomes more like chamber jazz as opposed to and I think it's because of the instrumentation you've got a mostly an acoustic mostly acoustic bass a completely acoustic violin because Mark doesn't use any processing on his instrument or amp he just play, gets a microphone and he plays right through the mic and so sometimes we sound like this little uh, strings and percussion group, you know, kind of going crazy, you know. But that's more like, sounds to me more like classical chamber music than it does free jazz. So I guess the chamber music handle, or chamber jazz, I guess it kind of, it makes sense. I, that wasn't my intention particularly. I just wanted something a little more acoustic, even though I'm an electric player. I wanted something that was uh, essentially acoustic, because I almost see the electric guitar as an acoustic instrument. I mean, it when you're not using tons of distortion and you're not playing at high volumes it's uh it's really just a guitar into an amplifier and it's you're just amplifying the sound of a, an instrument so it's not it's not electronic as it is more as it is like it's just electric electric acoustic i don't know You talked a fair amount in the beginning um, about uh, Thomas. I'm wondering if you can uh, just say a few words about about Joey and about Mark and what they what they bring to the ensemble. Oh well, I mean, Mark Feldman brings uh, just sort of this uh, amazingly accomplished violin playing and beautiful sound, almost classical sounding, as opposed to a, a you know when you think of jazz violin, you think most people think of Stefan Grappelli or, or Stuff Smith or where people have a particular kind of sound, you know. But Mark brings a really total classic, a totally classical sound and approach to improvising. And the great thing about Mark, and I've always said it, is he can really 
improvise on my songs. And my songs, even though they may be very tuneful and simple, simple sounding, they're not that simple to improvise on them. They have some unusual harmonies. They have funny numbers of, of measures in them as opposed to a standard jazz song. Uh, and Mark, you know what he does? He takes them home and he practices them. He, he'll take the chords and he'll take the song, or he'll have me play it sometimes, you know, play the chords in the, into a tape recorder or, you know, MP3 or something, and he'll take it home and put it in his computer and practice with it. So he approaches it really seriously. I mean, he takes this, this music seriously. That's a crazy idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's, whereas most jazz musicians wouldn't do that. That's the difference between Mark. I mean, he's really, if someone gives him a piece of music like a sonata to learn, he'll practice that. If I give him a tune, he'll practice that. I mean, it'll take a different kind of practicing than learning a piece that's fully written for the violin. I'm just writing songs, but he'll take that song and practice it and practice improvising on it. So when he comes to the recording it or the rehearsal or the, the gig, I mean, he's prepared. He knows what he's he knows what he's doing. So it's the many things I love about Mark is his sound, his classical approach, which draws me into that world more, um, and just his uh, seriousness about trying to really make the music sound great. He really cares. And Joey, on the other hand, is like, Joey really cares too, but Joey is a more like a magician to me because he, he also practices magic too. He, uh, I've seen him do magic tricks, and they're, they're not just your normal garden variety tricks like pick a card and then he'll tell you what it is. I mean, he'll make things appear out of the air and like all of a sudden pull a giant coin out of his pocket or something. It, people flip out when they see these things because he studied magic, and I find his playing to be that way. It's very sensitive, but it's very magical. Some of him, he'll just... He'll make this most unusual things happen. He'll just come up with the most unusual ideas. So the tunes, that's why the tunes will sound different from night to night, because, because I always believe the drummer sets the tone for the band in a lot of ways. You know, they, they set the tempo. They're in charge of the volume more than any other person in the band. And Joey's just able to come up with these incredible ideas. And also his drum solos, are, I find, to be the most fascinating drum solos to listen to. Because they're, they contain everything. They contain ideas. They contain melodies. They contain humor. And also they contain technique. But they, imagination is another thing I think about. He's just incredibly imaginative, you know. And that's why I love to play with him. Plus, he, it feels good to play with him, you know. I mean, the rhythm, the rhythmic part of Joey, I mean, he's a great drummer. And he can really swing and he can really play rock and roll if you want to go that direction. He can play free jazz. He can cover it all and all with a real devotion you know which is really rare you know he doesn't uh, it's not like he's just playing at something when he plays rock and roll i mean he sounds like john bonham from led zeppelin or something i mean it really sounds like a rock drummer he can really it's not like a jazz guy fooling with it you know right. he goes right into that zone and plays that and and that feels really good i like that i like the fact that we can you know maybe once a night do that you know get that kind of feeling going so and you never know what's going to happen. Some nights we wind up just playing a slow blues. I mean that's happened and it just and we find sometimes when things happen spontaneously, we, nobody talks about it, but we sort of remember, oh, last night we played a slow blues and we didn't intend to, or we did this or we did that or a certain pizzicato thing that Mark and I did, and it'll it'll return, it'll become part of a vocabulary, you know. So these things that are unspoken and not written, just improvised. All of a sudden, you, you repeat something similar in a, on maybe two gigs later, and then all of a sudden you're you're building this sort of repertoire of ideas that have nothing to do with the written music. It's extra stuff, you know. That makes this that that's what gives it this sort of like orchestral kind of like 
vibe, you know. I think that it's – so I, I can't say enough about those guys. I mean, I, you know, they're and, tremendous. And it sounds like that's what makes it a band too yeah. as opposed to just a collection of – of people, I mean, you have a shared vocabulary that's even beyond just what's on the page. Oh yeah, and I mean, I think that I think that just happens. Well, it doesn't happen with every band I've ever played in, for that's for sure. But I mean, it's a, uh, it's happened with most of the bands that have been my bands or bands that I've been part of for a long time. Because when you have that ongoing relationship, it usually means you enjoy playing together, and then you develop a level of trust, you know, so that okay, if if okay, so this is the end of the tune, but we're not going to end it right here. Let's. You trust that something's going to happen, you know, and you just let it happen. And, yeah, to me, that's where the – it's not the only part that's fun. It's fun playing the compositions, too, but it's – this is what keeps it, you know, extra special. I think you said earlier, that, you know, that, do you find something new or, you know, do you surprise yourself or something? And I – I have, now I'm coming back to answer that question. I think, yes, you know, we do, you know. And that's – I think that's the part that keeps you going even more than just like, oh, wow, I really played a great – I really played great on G minor back there, you know, or I really played these, this chord progression really good. It, that's part of it, but these other things are like, wow, where did that come from? That's got nothing to do with anything I wrote or the composition, but it's, it's great, you know. Let's keep it in the act, you know, so to, so to speak, you know. Uh, finally, I just want to ask, uh, when, when people hear this interview, we're going to be focused uh, on Wait Till You See Her, but we're actually in this room together because you're here uh, playing with John Sermon at Birdland. I just want mm -hmm. to ask about your relationship with John and how you ended up uh, on this project sure. and how it goes back. Uh, with John, it was, uh, it's just been one of these long-term kind of uh, relationships where we never really played a lot together. The, the first time I remember meeting John, and I'm, he says I'm correct, I was doing a record date with Jack DeJohnette and Dave Holland, and we were in a studio in Germany near Stuttgart, and we were listening to a playback, and all of a sudden into the control room walks John Sermon and his this trio he used to play with, which had a bassist, Bar Phillips, and a drummer named Stu Martin, and they all came piling in there and uh, just shouting their approval at what they were hearing back over the loudspeakers, you know. That was the first time I met him, and then shortly after that, I w the Manfred Eicher asked me to play on a Bar Phillips record that was called Mountainscapes, which included John and Stu Martin. And I played, I think I only played one tune, unfortunately, on that record. But that was the first time we played together. And right away, it seemed like there was a, a connection into this sort of very open style of playing, like he had done with John McLaughlin on Extrapolation. There was this very sort of open, no, not, no chords, you know, just very kind of free but kind of controlled freedom. And so uh, he's the key. I ran into him many times. He used to spend some time up in Woodstock, and we actually had a – we used to play together and jam up there. And then we also had a, this radio show, which I – I don't know whatever happened to the tapes, but it was a whole bunch of us got together, and we devised a – somebody wrote a script for this, and the script was called uh, – I think it was called Harry Lovett, Man Without a Country. And then there was another segment called Mr. Everything. And we all, like, made up our characters, and we rehearsed these parts, and we recorded it, you know, in a standing in a circle with microphones, and we, we did it like an old radio show. Wow. It really far out stuff, and I don't know whatever happened to the tapes, but every time John and I are in the same room, or Jack, because Jack was part of it, we, we, this comes up, you know. And Jack says, well, somewhere I have the tapes of that. So I, so I, I was involved very much on a humor level. With, with John and also with Jack and it, it, everyone seems to have such a great sense of humor so we got into that and then later some years later uh, I was playing with Mark Johnson and Peter Erskine which was my 
regular working trio, and we invited John to play on a record that was called November, eventually. And at that point, I knew that there was really a, a, a connection there, you know. I mean, I really felt comfortable playing with him. I mean, he just added so much to the music, and whether it was a song that was structured or whether we were improvising, everything just seemed... He seemed to just fit perfectly. And now this bit, current band, you know. And the recording, which happened, about, I guess, about a year and a half ago. I'm not really sure when we did it. You kind of lose track of that. And I think the recording is very good because it's, it, it allows... It, John wrote music that allowed us to sort of just be ourselves and just be, be relaxed. Like he said, he didn't try to make it really hard to read or he didn't want the musicians to be sitting in the studio trying to figure out everything, you know, and trying to me trying to figure out a fingering on the guitar to play some weird melody. So he just made it really easy. So we walked in. It was one of the easiest record dates I ever did. I just kind of walked in, put on the headphones. We rehearsed the music the day before, and then we just played it. And it just came off like that, you know. So I feel very, very comfortable with John and, and of course, with Jack and Drew Gress. We haven't played a lot over the years. This is the most I've played with John, and so I, I hope this continues. I mean, I hope we can, you know, take some little time off now after this. I think we're going to play the London Jazz Festival in November, around the 18th of November. You know, maybe there'll be another uh, recording in the works. You know, maybe it's kind of nice when you, when you get a good one to start with. You might want to follow it up and just, you know, do volume two, you know, sure. see where that goes, you know, especially now that we've played together. So it would probably be even better. Well, I've got to say I got into radio by collecting old radio shows starting when I was a little kid. So now I'm desperate to hear Harry Lovett, Man About the Country. <laughs> so we've got to find I got, got to I'll, find the tapes. We, I'll ask Jack and see it's, if we can find it's it. It's time. It's time to unearth <laughs> Harry Lovett, Man About the Country. You're right. <laughs> and I think the part I played was one of my characters, because Jack was trying to remember. He said, what the... What was your character in that? What, you know, what, he remembered his, whatever. And mine was a, the name was Donald Dastardly. <laughs> and I spoke kind of with a Truman Capote type voice, almost, almost like a feminine kind of voice. But at the same time, I was very evil, you know. So that was my role in Harry Lovett, Man Without a Country. And I, but most of it was kind of semi-scripted. So like, you know, we'd had things we were going to say and when people would speak and, I mean, now I'm getting excited. I'd, well, like listen, to, I'd like to rather hear that than the music. Yeah, I was going to say your recorded musical output is great and all, but yeah. we got to find. Yeah. The nation needs Harry Lovett. It does, country, right. So. This it, is the time, the time, especially the during these now. times. Right? <laughs> in these tough economic times. Right. That's exactly when he's needed. Well, my guest is John Abercrombie. His new album on ECM is called Wait Till You See Her. It's always such a pleasure to uh, talk to you. Thanks Likewise, a lot, Likewise, Jason. Thanks. Thank you.
That's guitarist John Abercrombie from his album Wait Till You See Her on ECM Records. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This program has an email mailing list. It's a great way to win free music. You can, you can sign up for it at thejazzsession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's a group for The Jazz Session, and I give away music there, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. They're also performing in and around New York quite a bit these days, so check out the respectsextet.com for their schedule. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivative Works, 3.0 United States license. Thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.